From Muhlenberg College, this is 2400 Chew. Your host is Megan Keita. In each episode of this podcast, we talk to one Muhlenberg graduate about their current work and the industry in which that work is done. For this episode, Megan spoke with Leonard Zahn, class of 79, the Grosbeck Professor of Pediatric Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Director of the Stem Cell Program at Boston Children's Hospital. As we do with most of these interviews, the conversation began by asking how and when Len became interested in his occupation. When I was in Muhlenberg, I was very interested in research, and I did research all four years of college. In the beginning, I did organic chemistry research, and then I switched at the last year to uh, biological research on cystic fibrosis. And I found this really exciting, and it caused me to go during my summer of my junior year to a cancer hospital called Roswell Park Memorial Institute, which was in Buffalo. And it was there that I found um, that I was pretty good at research and that I actually enjoyed it. And uh, I was at a cancer hospital, so I thought about studying cancer. And so I felt that solidified uh, my feelings about what I wanted to do. And can you talk a little bit about the hematology side of things as well? Because it seems like your work is at the intersection of those two things. You know, after I went to Muhlenberg, I went to Jefferson Medical College. And at Jefferson Medical College, I went to a lecture in my first year. And the lecture was by a famous hematologist, Alan Urslev. And he had discovered a protein that is circulating, and it's a hormone and it actually controls the number of red blood cells. It's called erythropoietin. And he had actually discovered it in the 1950s. And so um, I was so fascinated that there could be a hormone that controlled blood cells that I decided I needed to go into his lab. And so I went into his lab and uh, really enjoyed the experience. It was terrific. And that allowed me to uh, think more about hematology as a career. And he was actually the one who suggested that I move to Boston. He said, if you want to do academic hematology, go to Boston. And so then I landed uh, in Boston as an internal medicine resident at New England Deaconess Hospital. And at the New England Deaconess Hospital, that at that time was uh, the pandemic of AIDS. And um, I saw many people who were dying of AIDS. And I started to study that in the laboratory, in a laboratory of uh, Dr. Jerry Groupman. And that research went very well. I did some of the very first staining for HIV virus in the world, and it was just a very exciting time. So then when I finished as an internal medicine resident, I applied for a fellowship in oncology, and I went to Dana-Farber Cancer Institute to do my oncology there. And uh, that was an exciting time, and then landed in a hematology lab in Dr. Stuart Orkin's lab. And now, as I understand it, you're, you're a researcher and a clinician. Like, can you talk about the breakdown of your typical work day or typical work week and what those things typically look like? Well, over my career, that uh, percentage of uh, clinical versus uh, research time has changed. Uh, but for most of my career, I was a, a physician scientist and I uh, saw patients one month a year in service. So every consult that has a hematology bend on it was seen by me. And then I would have clinic once a week. And the rest of the time I was in the laboratory. 
Over time, that's uh, phased away a little bit. I don't have a clinic anymore in hematology, but I still see patients in consult. Can you describe the research that's happening in your lab? I read about it. Sure. What it looks like. We use uh, zebrafish as a model system to study disease. And so uh, the zebrafish is very small. It's about one inch in size. And I can put um, 70 zebrafish into a little tank. And at Children's Hospital, I have 300,000 zebrafish. And um, each mother has 200 babies every week. So if you're interested in genetics and how blood diseases occur in families and how brothers and sisters relate to each other, it's a fantastic system. So we can actually make fish that carry mutations in certain families. And these families have blood diseases. And then we figure out what's wrong with the fish family. And then we've been able to use that information to find the human genes. And we found patients are mutated in those genes. So we've discovered five new human diseases as a result of the zebrafish. So it's a very fascinating system. We've also uh, developed it as a cancer model. We have fish with a skin tumor called melanoma, and we study that process. And we've been able to take five um, drugs that we found by adding them to the water of the fish and uh, bring them into clinical trials to help treat patients. That's interesting. And and can you, I read a little bit about this in the profile, but can you tell the story of how you decided zebrafish was going to be the, the animal you were going to use in your lab and kind of why they're a good model for, you know, translating things to humans? Sure. Well, it's a, it's an interesting story. So we, um, so I uh, finished uh, my postdoctoral work at uh, Children's Hospital of Boston, and I had discovered a protein that was involved in turning on red blood cell genes. It's kind of the master regulator of red blood cell development. And so it was a big discovery, and then people wondered what I would do, and I started my own lab, and I was invited to stay at Children's Hospital to set up my own lab. So I um, had a... Um, a decision to make about what the topic would be. And I decided that I was going to work on the mouse as a model system. <clears throat> and my topic was, how does an organism make blood? My thoughts were that embryos know how to make blood. And so if I could discover how embryos make blood, it would be uh, nice to be able to translate that information to uh, human disease. So um, I had never dissected out a mouse embryo when it started to make blood, but that is about seven and a half days of development. And so on one Friday evening, I went over to MIT, which is close to our lab here, and I um, dissected out uh, mouse embryos. And it took uh, six hours. And at the end of the day, I had six embryos in a dish. And I looked at this and I said, there's just no way I'm going to be able to do what I wanted to do with the mouse. And so I was pretty depressed. I came back to the lab that evening, and one of my friends was there, Alan Ezekowitz. And Alan uh, became the head of pediatrics at Mass General and also uh, vice president of Merck. And, um, and anyway, he, um, he said to me, well, um, in science, you need to have thick skin. So what he meant is sometimes you get thrown some data, and it may not exactly validate your hypothesis, but you basically need to... Um, Keep going. So I uh, walked down the hallway and then I met another friend of mine, Celeste Simon, who's a professor at Penn right now. 
And uh, I said, she said, you look horrible. And I said, well, you know, I just was over in MIT dissecting out mouse embryos. Mice aren't going to do it for me. I don't know what I'm going to do in my new lab. And, and she said, well, I can't solve that, but I'm having a party at, at my house. So why don't you come to the party? So now it's Friday evening. I'm at the party and I have a beer in my hand. And um, <clears throat> this guy walks up to me, Jerry Thompson, who's now a professor at Stony Brook. Uh, and he says, uh, who are you? And I said, well, I'm Len Zahn. And he says, what do you do? And I said, well, I clone this big DNA binding protein, GATA1, and uh, this would the master regulator of red blood cells. And I said, he says, what do you want to do? And I say, well, we want to figure out how embryos make blood. And I said, I tried mice this afternoon, and it's just not going to work. And he said, you know, you need an externally fertilized animal. And I said, like what? And he goes, like, I work on frogs. And frogs have thousands of embryos. And then you could look at one cell embryo, two cell, four cell, and eventually they'll make blood. And uh, so he says, you should come talk to my boss, Doug Melton, and, uh, who's a professor at Harvard, and he might be able to help you. So I went to talk to Doug. And uh, we ended up deciding that I would start my lab doing frog blood formation. And we started doing that for about a, a year and a half. And the results were actually very exciting. But there were no genetics in the frogs. And I, I really wanted to have a genetic family with a mutation that would be causing a problem. So I went to a conference um, in, uh, uh, called the Hemoglobin Switching Meeting. Uh, this is all about hemoglobin. And um, I presented our frog work, and uh, I had been reading about the zebrafish as a model system. And after my talk, a guy came up to me and says, could we talk about your work? And we ended up in the back of the room talking for about an hour. And he made the point that uh, the frog work was great, but that zebrafish was going to be a better system. And I felt also, at that time, I had already read about it, and I thought it could be a better system. And so he basically, in an hour, convinced me to do zebrafish. <clears throat> and um, I came back to my office the next day, and uh, I was wondering, who am I going to get to do zebrafish at my lab? And the phone rang, and it was this investigator, Bill Dietrich, who was a professor at Northeastern University. And uh, Bill works on the Antarctic ice fish. And this is a fish that swam down to Antarctica and started to have strokes. And the reason it was having strokes was there were too many red blood cells. And so to get rid of the strokes, genetically, the fish deleted its red blood cells. And so he, the ice fish has no red blood cells. And so he um, said, I want to come to your lab to study the ice fish. And I said, I don't care about the ice fish. How about zebrafish? And he goes, all right, sign me up for a sabbatical. So I had my first person ready to go. Then the next day, a lab, uh, Wally Gilbert's lab called me. Wally had won the Nobel Prize for sequencing. Uh, he was at Harvard also. And, um, and he said they had done some zebrafish mutant screens, and they had a mutant that didn't make blood. And he said, uh, we don't want it, but we think you probably should take it. And so I took the mutant, the bloodless mutant. And that started my lab doing zebrafish. So somebody upstairs in this one week, literally it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, somebody upstairs was telling me, you should start doing zebrafish. And that's what we did. Can you just talk a little bit about 
how big your lab is, who's in your lab, how many people you're working with at any given time, and what the experiments that are happening with these 300,000 zebrafish actually kind of look like. Sure. So, um, so my lab is about 30 people in size, and uh, this is a group of different categories. So there's about 12 or 13 postdoctoral fellows. And these are people who already did a PhD, and now they're going for more training, and hopefully they want to have their own labs someday. Uh, then I have graduate students, and the graduate students are training here at Harvard. Most of them are in the it's called the BBS program, the Biological and Biopharmacological Sciences program. Uh, it's a PhD program at uh, Harvard. And then I have a number of technicians who are usually people who have just graduated from college and, um, and are actually uh, working towards either going to medical school or graduate school or nursing school or physical therapy school. So, um, so uh, that's the team, and uh, uh, you know it takes a lot of effort to uh, organize that kind of a group. So we have many different organizational activities. We have lab meeting once a week where one person presents for two hours. They get a lot of feedback on their project. We have two other meetings, a blood group and a cancer group meeting on Tuesdays and Thursdays, where we bring in lunch, and then lots of people talk at those meetings and share their latest uh, scientific results. I have one-on-one -on -one meetings with every postdoctoral fellow uh, once a month, and I have uh, meetings with my graduate students every other month. And then you might imagine the mentoring part here is very important, and so I uh, take my mentoring very seriously. So we have different activities of uh, postdoc tea twice a year where we do some mentoring, graduate student lunch twice a year, we also do mentoring, and then technician breakfast. And so. Uh, those groups are all organized. And I think my lab is known for being nice. We select for nice. And I think that it's a very high scientific environment. I'm a Howard Hughes investigator. Howard Hughes funds the top 300 scientists in the country. And so it's you know one of the top labs. And uh, so I think it works very well. So on an individual day, if you imagine that you have 30 people, and let's say the projects are mostly driven individually by postdocs and graduate students, and each one of them has separate research streams. So for instance, there might be somebody who is working on leukemia in the zebrafish, which we've been able to make a model. And this person over the past couple of years has been able to find that clones of cells that surround have actually expanded. And this is causing the growth of the leukemia over the growth of the good normal stem cells. And so these types of projects start off with a beginning. They start, well, let's make a leukemia model. Well, that probably took a year to make the leukemia model. Then you say, okay, we need to do an experiment to look at the clones of, of these nurse cells, of the stromal cells. That probably takes another year. And you set up multiple different research streams per person in the lab, and you follow them longitudinally, and uh, it put together the story, which ultimately gets published in a scientific journal. So it sounds like the work is all building on previous work from your lab and other labs, and the idea is to just keep kind of moving forward. Yeah, I think what, you know, I think one of the nice parts about it being a physician scientist is when you see a patient and they have a particular, let's say, genetic disease for a blood disease or a cancer, then you know it makes you think about what could I do in the laboratory to help that patient? And so you go into the laboratory and think about 
stem cell transplantation, for instance, and then we're able to find a drug that can increase the number of blood stem cells in the zebrafish and then translate that by putting that drug into humans. So there's a lot of back and forth. And what's nice about the environment of a laboratory, it's just you can have lots of people give different opinions to uh, of what a project should move forward with or not. And this helps the individual make decisions about how to actually drive that project. Okay. So there's still that element of, you know, the 10% clinician work that you're doing is inspiring the lab work that you're doing. Yeah. I think it's one of the powers about being a physician scientist is you really get to see both sides. It's uh, very rewarding. For somebody who has a basic understanding of what stem cells do, Sure, let's, I'm happy let's to kind of yeah let's, give the stem give the cell 101 okay yeah stem right. cell 101 and kind of how like you can apply something that you've learned from a zebrafish and figure out how it might benefit yeah okay. human patients because those feel yeah. like very different organisms yeah so um so what happens is um in your body you have organs and many organs have a population of cells stem cells that have the ability to remake the organ. These stem cells usually stay in a quiescent behavior, and then um, they get reactivated in times of stress when the organ is under a challenge of some form. And they'll try to remake the organ. And this is one of the major defense mechanisms of the body to be able to fight off uh, organ damage. So in the blood system, uh, your blood cells are actually made in the marrow, which is inside the long bones. And uh, what happens is you have blood stem cells. These blood stem cells can make all the different lineages of the blood system. So if somebody were to get irradiated, let's say, or, or have high-dose chemotherapy, they're able to bounce back because of the stem cell population that will be called into action and start to make blood cells at a very rapid pace. And um, so these stem cells have an identity. There are a small number of cells in the organ, and uh, you can study them. Probably the most important way of thinking about this is a stem cell can be transplanted. So a patient can have a leukemia, and they can get their brother or sister's stem cells. Uh, and, and so the patient would get treated with chemotherapy, erase their leukemia, let's say, and then they can be transplanted with their brother or sister's stem cells. And for the rest of their life, all the blood that's going to be made is from their brother or their sister. So it's pretty amazing. And it uh, only needs to be done once, and it's curative. So stem cells can last a long time because they have very high levels of self-renewal. They make themselves. So uh, a number of us have been uh, very excited about stem cells. And uh, it turns out that all vertebrates have stem cells in all their different organs. And so the zebrafish has a marrow, and inside the marrow are blood stem cells. So one of the nice attributes that we know about about stem cells is the more stem cells you give a patient, the better they will do. And we know this clinically. So the problem for some people is there aren't enough stem cells in a particular brother or sister or unit that's been collected, and, and so we need to raise the number of blood stem cells. So one of the things we did many years ago was to look by adding chemicals to the water, if we could find a chemical that would increase blood stem cells. And we did find one called prostaglandin E2. And we gave it to the fish, number of stem cells went way up. 
So that was very exciting. And so we took that chemical and we showed that it worked in a mouse. So we added it um, to stem cells outside the body and transplanted them. And the number of stem cells that actually went into the body or engrafted actually turned up with these mice. So it was very exciting. And then we took it to a clinical trial. So um, we treated patients. And in the first trial, we um, had patients who had leukemia, but they didn't have a match from a brother or sister. So one of the alternative sources of stem cells is the umbilical cord. So the umbilical cord actually has some stem cells in it. And the standard of care in the United States is to give a patient two umbilical cords worth of stem cells to rescue them after high-dose chemotherapy for their leukemia. So we took one of the cord bloods and treated it with our chemical and left the other cord blood untreated. And then we infused the cells into the patient and we measured their how much blood came from the treated versus the untreated cord blood. And we found that the treated cord blood won in 10 out of 12 patients. And so it seemed like it was active and we now have treated 150 patients with this uh, chemical and it seems to work. Um, and it's become a little bit of a standard of therapy for patients who have gene therapy or CRISPR-based therapy, which is a new technology to do gene editing. Um, so uh, it's very exciting to have uh, something you found in the laboratory actually get into the clinic. And uh, so that's probably been my most important work that we've studied. Talk about the most challenging aspect of your job and then the most rewarding aspect of your job. I think the most challenging part of my job has to do around fundraising. Obviously, we have 30 people in the lab. Um, my stem cell program, which for which I'm the director, is 110, 120 people at any moment. And so I'm responsible for all those people. And, you know, being able to fund the research, it's very expensive. And uh, even though we are funded pretty well, we, uh, we always are on uh, the lookout for more funds. And so I'd say that I write about 20 grants a year. That is a lot of effort. I enjoy it because it makes you think about the science that you're doing, but it's a lot of effort. So I'd say that's probably one of my big challenges. I do a lot of, a lot of people have uh, done private philanthropy to be able to fund our research. And, um, and so I talk to a lot of donors also. And so these are things that, um, you know, are, are, are not hard and are wonderful, but it's, um, but it's an extra effort that, you, you know, you wish you could do your science and not have to do. I mean, the best part of my job is I really enjoy doing our science. I mean, right now, biology is incredible and the ability to do things with new techniques and it's just so incredible. And uh, so I'm really uh, enjoying the actual work we do. And I love when I'm talking to a student or a postdoc about their project and trying to move things forward. These are very, very important aspects. Um, and I think that's probably the most on a day-to-day -day satisfying you know, I think when, as a physician scientist, when you can have something uh, from your laboratory directly translate to the clinic, that's very, very satisfying also. So, um, so I'd say those are the highlights. You know, I'd say our currency at some levels is papers. When you have a really, really nice paper that you're incredibly proud of, it's like having a painting on the wall, you know, and you sit there and you go like, wow, it's a really good paper, you know, and, uh, and uh, that just makes you really appreciate it. 
And then, you know, recently uh, it's been nice to get a few awards, uh, you know, uh, getting into the National Academy. That's uh, kind of validation from your peers that they think you did a pretty good job in your career. Um, two months ago, I had a chair at Harvard Medical School named for me. And I think um, that's pretty amazing. Uh, that's a rare thing. Most uh, people go through their whole career at Harvard and never get a chair named after them. So I I thought that was uh, super exciting and uh, again, a validation for what your peers think of you, what the institutions think of you. And it's a, it was a very happy occasion. Uh, I, in my speech for the, um, that chair, I, um, I said, I'd love to go back to my 26 uh, year old self that arrived at Harvard to do his medical internal medicine residency and uh, tell that kid, you know, hey, you know, someday they'll name a chair after uh, after you at Harvard Medical School. I, I think that would be pretty funny. So it's it's very, very nice. Um, I have to retire to formally get the chair uh, be named after me. So I don't really have any plans on retiring, but it's nice to know that it'll be there when I do retire. What guidance or advice would you give to someone who's interested in doing what you do? I think it all comes down to mentoring. You know, I, I still have four mentors and they're wonderful and they really help me at, you know, at different times. And I'm sure one of my mentors who I trained with as a postdoc here at Children's, you know, I'm sure he, he had a lot to do with putting me up to becoming a National Academy member. And so the key is to go to places where you're going to get very good mentoring. I've been lucky to be able to do that. And picking up mentors is a little bit of an art, but being able to get the right mentoring so that you get to where you need to go, I think is, is really wonderful. And those become your you know, life coaches forever. This episode of 2400 Chew was produced by the Office of Alumni Affairs at Muhlenberg College. It was recorded remotely and engineered in the studios of WMUH Allentown, Pennsylvania. Our opening and closing music from Cowboy Bebop is performed by the Muhlenberg College Jazz Big Band. <laughs> <laughs>